Good morning, everybody. I'm George Selgin, director of the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and I'm very pleased to welcome all of you to today's discussion of the recently released report of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Task Force. I also want to make sure that you take advantage of uh, our discussion to ask us questions. I'll be speaking for about half an hour, maybe maybe a little bit longer. During that time, you can use uh, the place you're, stream, uh, you're streaming this video chat on to uh, ask questions, and we'll try to get to those at the end of our program. Besides being the head of the CFPB task force, uh, Todd is uh, George Mason University Foundation Professor of Law at George Mason University uh, Law School, and he's also the former executive director of that school's Law and Economics Center. And as if that's not enough, uh, he's also a Cato CMA, a CMFA Senior Fellow. Welcome, Todd. It's great to be here. Are you there, Todd? Great. Yes, can uh, you hear me? It's, it's just shy. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Great. It's just shy of a month since the task force released its uh, report. So we're very, very pleased uh, to have you with us today to publicly discuss it uh, for the first time. Uh, I, we mainly want to focus on the report's recommendations, of course. Uh, but before going into those, uh, I thought uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the task force itself, including uh, the members that uh, make it up. How, how were they chosen and what, what uh, interest groups or areas of expertise uh, do they uh, represent. Well, thanks, George. Um, first, I want to thank uh, Director Kathy Craninger for uh, her vision in deciding to uh, do this task force and and selecting me, giving me the honor of chairing it. Um, it was a great it was a it was great uh, treat um, and, a, and a real honor. I uh, we we were commissioned by Director Craninger to uh, provide a report. Um, we were chosen last January, January 2020, um, and we basically had three objectives, uh, which is the first she asked us to do was to provide an objective and independent assessment um, and provide a consensus report of the current state of the consumer financial system um, and um, uh, uh, and the like. Um, second, she asked us to provide recommendations uh, as to how to improve and strengthen consumer financial laws. And third, she has perhaps most daunting, she asked us to do it within one year after uh, setting it up. And so we were pulled together in January uh, 2020. Um, and January 5th uh, of this year, we reported back. There were five members, uh, myself as chair, um, uh, Tom Durkin, who was a former uh, economist at the Fed, um, uh, Howard Beals, who was the former head of the uh, Consumer Protection Bureau at the Federal Trade Commission, Bill Cloud, Bill McLeod, who was also a former head of the Consumer Protection Bureau at the Federal Trade Commission, and Gene Noonan, who is both uh, was both the first consumer finance uh, financial protection uh, lawyer at the FTC, and later was the um, the in how the the general counsel of the Farm Credit Bureau, and has had a very distinguished career in private practice. So we had an unusually uh, rich array of different experiences and backgrounds from economists to lawyers to a lawyer economist and the like, and it just turned out to be a really great team to work together with uh, highly complementary skills. Terrific. Well, thanks for that. Uh, well, let's go ahead and go into the report, Todd. Uh, 
for those of you listening who don't know, this is a very substantial document. Uh, there's actually two documents. One is a 900-page one uh, of investigative findings, and then there is a separate 100-page uh, document that actually summarizes the task force's recommendations. I have that uh, in front of me. Uh, I ought to confess, I've only read the whole uh, second shorter document that's still working my way through the other 100 pages. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and, and I want to focus, of course, for that reason, but also because I think it's what people care about on the recommendation part of the task force report. But first, uh, I want to ask you, Todd, uh, what's the point of that other 900 page document? It, it, it reminds <laughs> me a little bit, it, it reminds me a little bit of those uh, high school assignments where the teacher said uh, that besides answering the questions, you have to show your work. <laughs> So I always assumed that, I always assumed when the teachers did that is so we wouldn't cheat, right? So do, do, is that is that why you you have another nine hundred pages? Are you trying to show people that you didn't cheat? What's that all about? The, yeah, partly it is to uh, to, to show our work, George, uh, which is that uh, um, the, yeah we have one hundred and two recommendations, uh, concrete recommendations. But one of the things to keep in mind is this is a document we were writing not for this year or next year or for the next five years, but something looking 10 or 20 years out. And so we really wrote the big report, the big first part for two reasons, which was first to explain all the background reasoning to the recommendations so that people could come where, see where they came from and basically see where we arrived at, uh, where we arrived at. Uh, but the second thing is to go beyond just the immediate issues of the day, which is what the recommendations are all about and think about sort of lay out a way of thinking about consumer financial protection over the long run, which is new issues are going to arise, not just the 102 recommendations we make, but new issues are going to arise over time. And we wanted to create a, a body, sort of a capital stock of knowledge that people could repeal back to, that they could look to, to come up with a framework for thinking about new issues uh, as they arise. Because we're in a real state of flux right now with the consumer financial system, with technology and innovation and everything else. And so we thought it was important to provide a large framework and not just immediate answers. Okay, great. Well, so let's go on to those recommendations that come out of that framework. Uh, one of the first in the report is that, uh, and I quote now, the Bureau, Congress, and other federal and state regulators should exercise caution in, restrict in restricting, <clears throat> excuse me, the use of non-financial alternative data. <clears throat> It seems kind of hard to argue against exercising caution, of course, but but just what sort of alternative data uh, is this referring to and why would regulators want to restrict its use? And finally, of course, why does the task force think that uh, they need to be cautious about it? Well, George, I think the the a centerpiece of the whole report, and I know a passion of mine as well as all of my fellow task force members, more than anything else is financial inclusion, which is we have a remarkable consumer finance system that has developed in this country over the past several decades, uh, really since the 70s. And it actually works really well for middle class uh, Americans. Yet we have, um, through credit cards, mortgages, all that sort of stuff, sure there are, there are problems, but it's really sort of a marvel of, uh, of development and choice and competition. 
And a particular concern of ours was um, the question of financial inclusion, which is making sure we have a financial system that works for everybody, uh, that works for people who've been a- around the margins. And and a lot of those people have gained access, uh, lower income people, immigrants, um, minorities, younger people have gained a lot more access than they had in the past. But this still remains a, a, a big sticking point, an issue that we really care about. Um, and this runs through the whole report, whether it's our call for more research on how to um, improve access by rural communities, um, how to improve access for uh, formerly incarcerated uh, individuals who face real problems uh, getting access to the uh, financial system after they get out and the like, or the points that you talked to, which is alternative data, which is we've got a relatively hidebound system uh, today um, through the consumer um through the reporting says credit reporting agencies and the like, which is works really well for most people. But there are a lot of people who don't have um, rich uh, data um, uh, credit files. Uh, the CFPB has said that there are tens of millions of people who have thin files or no files. And so I think it's, it's a wide recognition that looking at new forms of data, such as cash flow data, such as paying utility bills and the like, can be a way of increasing financial inclusion and a way of increasing the accuracy of the, uh, of the risk-based pricing system. Um, and a lot of the concerns are not well articulated, uh, and they rest, I think, on some notions of sort of what is legitimate, what's illegitimate. And one of the points we make is that this is changing over time. It's very much in flux what people think about uh, their uh, their uh their information being used. And people, have, uh, um, and especially younger generations now, are, are becoming more savvy and more careful about how their information is used. And a lot of the systems that are in place block access to things like cell phone payments, utility bills, uh, and those sorts of, um, those sorts of uh, uh, data. And, and we wanted to try to create a playing field where those sorts of bills could be better, more part of somebody's uh, file. So the idea, Todd, is that... Um that when people don't have uh, a credit history of the kind that's usually considered adequate to, to justify, say, a bank making them a loan, that some other forms of information that isn't usually collected could be a substitute. But of course, it could work the other way, right? If we let uh, p- uh, financial firms gather uh, other information, they could also use it as a as a reason to justify or basis for justifying excluding people from loans. Uh, so, uh, uh, your your proposal presumably is trying to find a a uh, a, a happy medium between those possibilities. Is that right? That's that, that's exactly right, George. Which is one of the things we state again and again and again in the report is that that obviously uh, we should uh, enforce all non-discrimination laws and the like very rigorously um, and carefully. Uh, and, and and so improper use of uh, of that data is something that we um, uh, strongly um, object to. But uh, but you but you, but you put your finger on the the point here, which is that um, that there are a lot of people who don't have credit cards, uh, for example, when they're younger. Um, but they do have cell phones, they do have cash flow, they do have an ability to show their ability to pay their bills, and there's always the possibility that there is some aspect that uh, uh, using information that allows some people to get 
access the credit they otherwise wouldn't or to get a lower rate than they wouldn't means also that some people won't be as a uh, will be less will be a worse risk uh, than they might appear uh, at first glance but information is the coin of the realm when it comes to financial services um, and over the long run our assessment is that more information more accurate information in the system will end up making the system more efficient and in the long run will increase financial inclusion for everybody I want to uh, turn to some more uh, recommendations specifically related to financial inclusion in, in the report. But first, I want to step back to a, a broader issue. The, the report puts a lot of emphasis on the CFPB's, uh, quote, a mandate to ensure competition in markets, unquote, as one of several means for protecting consumers. So with that in mind, uh, another of the report's recommendations is that uh, the CFPB takes steps to make it easier for people to take their business from one bank to another. And, uh, and the report uh, compares the steps that ought to be taken or that can be taken to the ones regulators took in the past to facilitate uh, competition among telephone service providers. So can you, can you expand on this? I mean, I, after all, uh, the banking industry isn't exactly like the old AT&T. So what, what's the problem here? What, what, what makes it hard for somebody to switch banks, bank accounts? Uh, it doesn't seem that way to me. Is this something that particularly affects poor people? Uh, what, what's the story? I, I think it affects everybody. Um, and and so, so the way we come at this in the report, George, is uh, um, one thing we know is that people aren't usually satisfied with their credit cards. Um, people, when the Federal Reserve does studies of people's credit card uh, ownership, um, they're very happy with their credit cards. And the reason is it's really, people report, it's really easy to switch your credit card if uh, if you um, don't like your credit card provider. If you think they're socking with a fee you don't uh, need, you can, or don't deserve, you can cancel your card and move on to somebody else, which creates a real discipline uh, effect. Um, what we know is that it that people change their bank accounts a lot less often um, than they do, say, with credit cards or prepaid cards, um, which also affects obviously their debit cards. Now, it could be uh, we we you know we suggest it, it could be that people are just really 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 happy with their bank accounts much more than they are with their credit card providers, but it could also be that bank accounts raise particular challenges for people to be able to switch their bank accounts, which attenuates the competitive uh, pressures. And so, um, and so, for example, one of the issues is you've got this problem of sort of trailing payments, uh, which is if you have automatic payments, for example, if you want to switch from bank A to bank B. For a while, you might end up having to uh, maintain two bank accounts to make sure that all of your payments at Bank A actually go go through before you can switch to Bank B. That's obviously going to be a, uh, a tax on switching bank accounts, especially for lower income people. I switched bank accounts a few years ago, and I have to say it was a real hassle uh, to try to do it. And so, um, and so the the analogy here isn't so much the old AT and T; it's to cell phone providers. Um, and the and what we had in mind potentially was the idea of now you can switch your carrier and still keep your same cell phone. Um, you can switch and uh, cell phone number so that your number can can move with you wherever you uh, where you go. Um, and others uh, other countries have. Uh, 
come up with these open banking regimes uh, that make this possible. Certainly technology um, has developed such companies such as Plaid and the like, uh, which um, have kind of stepped into this breach to try to to try to provide ways for consumers to, uh, to find out whether their money's making its maximum yield, to be able to get information, switch accounts, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I think to some extent that, that obviously that's useful. It serves a consumer function, but there may also be ways in which we can more directly facilitate competition in, uh, in bank accounts um, so that people don't have as high of a, of a switching cost. And that's what we're, what we're getting at is at least make it easier, reduce those frictions to switch among different banks. Uh, the report also recommends steps that would uh, simplify or unify state licensing laws to, uh, and again, I quote, uh, make it difficult for that, sorry, to simplify laws that make it difficult for non-bank financial service providers to expand their business across state lines. So uh, uh, tell us a little more about about the issue here, Todd, and, and the solutions that the report uh, recommends. Well, one of the big obstacles right now to uh, to innovation and inclusion, we uh, think in the uh, uh, consumer financial system is this web of state licensing laws, whether it's mortgage brokers, whether it's different personal finance companies uh, uh, and the like. And it's not really clear in a lot of cases what function they're actually serving in terms of, uh, of helping consumers as opposed to simply protecting incumbents. Um, and writing the report during the pandemic turned out to be a, um, you know, this terrible pandemic turned out to be a, a very interesting experience uh, for us, which is that one of the, the, the report really has three main features. First, inclusion that we talked about. Second was think, looking at um, consumer uh, financial protection through the lens of consumer harm. And third is regulatory modernization. Um, and among the things on regulatory modernization was the recognition during the pandemic of how archaic a lot of our rules are. Um, and in particular, when it comes to state licensing and the like, they really just protect special interests. Um, they serve no function uh, for consumers. A lot of these licensing laws are just barriers to entry. Uh, but beyond that, they can really be pernicious. So for example, a lot of states have laws that require in-person real estate closings, uh, um, which was terrible during the pandemic. In-person um, appraisals of homes, having to get documents notarized. I mean, all these sort of crazy uh, rules and regulations that just drive up costs um, and, you know, transfer rents to particular uh, licensed uh, uh, professionals. We think it's that the states at least should take a close look at that. Think about what impact this has on competition and innovation and driving up the cost to, uh, to, to consumers and licensing laws that seem to serve no function except to protect incumbents from competition are at the top of the list of things that should be, uh, uh, should be scrutinized closely. Thanks for that, Todd. Um, many, many critics of the task force uh, reading about uh, things that were being said about it before the report came out, certainly, um, expected the report to be very pro-industry uh, rather than pro-consumer. I must say, for my part, and it's not just because you're Cato Senior Fellow, <laughs> that the report didn't seem so to me. But um, there is at least there are a couple of recommendations I think that might be perceived uh, as uh, uh, tilting things in favor of industry. One of the ones that struck me 
uh, that certainly might seem to do that to others, is that um, uh, uh, the recommendation that Congress amend the Fair Credit Reporting Act to limit monetary awards in successful class action suits against financial firms. So how's that supposed to help consumers? You're saying that the financial firms will, will, will not have to face uh, uh, big, uh, big penalties uh, from these suits. Uh, how's that going to help consumers? A great question, uh, uh, George, and um, and I and I appreciate your introductory remarks saying that uh, that you think uh, um, that, that 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 description is inaccurate, and and we felt like that also, uh, as we talked about at the beginning. We we show our homework. If people disagree with us, they can at least see transparently how we ended up reaching our our conclusions. Um, our focus on consumer harm is. Uh, is Another area in which I don't know if people focused on that as much, but but think about these big thickets of regulation of uh, uh, of disclosure that you get. Um, industry likes those big thickets of disclosure that nobody reads, right? It's like the pop-ups uh, you get when you go to a website. Nobody reads the uh, the cookie policy; they just click on it, and it's a pretense of uh, of actually consenting. And and we think that that's silly to think that giving people gigantic stacks of documents, expecting them to read them. Um, Maybe that helps industry get protected from uh, lawsuits down the road, but it doesn't seem like a sensible consumer protection uh, policy. So we focus on consumer harm, and that's partly what leads us into the the limits on class actions, uh, which is we um, elsewhere in the report say that uh, um, that uh, uh, that. In enforcement policy should policy should be focused on the actual harm to consumers um, more than sort of just running up damages or just figuring out how much the company could pay or whatever. You should try to calibrate it to consumer harm. This is a, a standard rule of, uh, of law and economics uh, in terms of optimal deterrence. With respect to the particular thing involving credit reporting agencies, that was one of the first statutes that was written. Um, uh, we suggest that really there's no other statute that gives you sort of unlimited liability, but the bet the company uh, liability, as we talk about there. Um, and it's just an outlier. Um, and nobody's given an explanation for why that particular um that, 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 that particular statute should have essentially unlimited um, damages for somebody, whereas other statutes try to calibrate it to some extent to consumer harm. And so this is one of the things we put in to basically say, if there's a reason why that this should be so much larger than everything else, then tell us why. Because otherwise, it, it, you know, there's, there's a problem. But there's a problem of over-deterrence. Uh, which is that if you discourage people from uh, um, from sharing information, if you cause um, over deterrence uh, with respect to how people uh, collect information alike, that results in increased cost. And those increased costs eventually result in increased cost to consumers uh, that gets passed on in the form of higher costs um, and less access to credit. And so getting the damages right, we think is really important. And, and maybe those are the right damages, but it's not the way we've done it in any other consumer financial legislation. So we say we should look, you should take another look at that and think about whether or not that rule still makes sense. I see. So part of the problem is that that these uh, suits, if they uh, impose very high penalties, those costs can sometimes be passed on to other consumers. Is that, uh, that's part of what you're saying, I take it. 
That, that's that's exactly right, George, uh, which is you can think of consumer um, consumer financial protection through we, we talk about a type one, type two error approach uh, like you see in antitrust and other places, which is that if you make uh, liability too vague or too large, that will cause um that will cause adjustments by uh, by by issuers by lenders. Uh, they're going to be less likely to lend to uh, to risky to risky borrowers, and they're going to increase prices to to everybody. And so, over deterrence can be as big of a problem as under deterrence. Um, and we say you should basically step back and think about what optimal deterrence and optimal remedies are, adjusted by the fact of uh, you know all the different factors, including the actual harm plus the likelihood of uh, getting caught uh, and the like. Let's return to the question of financial inclusion. Uh, this is certainly one of the biggest perceived problems in consumer finance today, and it's, it seems likely to get quite a lot of attention uh, from the Biden administration. Um, and I want to particularly talk about the, the question of uh, a lack of the, 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 of the unbanked, uh, those who don't have bank accounts at all because they find handing the, having them too burdensome. Uh, now, some are calling on the Fed to supply uh, such uh, uh, people with uh, low-cost retail accounts, that is, accounts at the Fed itself, which would be quite an innovation. The task force instead recommends that the Fed, quote, speed up payments clearance, speed up the payments clearance system by updating regulation CC on expedited funds of, sorry, on expedited funds availability as an appro appropriate uh, step to reflect improvements in the check technology for faster check clearing. Now, I must say, if it's a choice between give people Fed accounts and doing this, give Fed accounts to people is going to win by being a lot easier to say. <laughs> so maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit more about this alternative, spell it out in plain English starting with what regulation CC is, and then uh, how updating that regulation would, would improve things, uh, would improve a poorer person's access to banking services. Yeah, a great question. Thank you for that, George. And um, and I will say your work on this um, uh, has been in, th in terms of thinking about faster payments uh, and the work you've done on that um, is is very important stuff. And as you know, it's um, cited in the in the report. Um, th this problem, and, and I'm and and I agree with you. And I hope that financial inclusion is a uh, high priority of the Biden administration, because I think it really is a moral imperative uh, to increase access to the financial system uh, for, for everybody and have a financial system that works for everybody, because um, this is this is energy, right? Uh, access to financial products and services is necessary for for the for the world to uh, to go go round, and we we address this in two ways in the report. Uh, the first is we look at um, eliminating current barriers to uh, uh, mainly regulatory, but perhaps other economic, but but eliminating barriers that prevent um, uh, lenders and industry from uh, from. Uh, providing uh, financial services uh, uh, to consumers. So things like the Durban Amendment, uh, which um, would prove devastating, uh, which placed uh, price controls on interchange fees that got passed through to consumers and reduced access to free checking and higher checking accounts. That's been horrible uh, for low-income consumers uh, who can't uh, meet higher minimum balance requirements. 
talk a lot about the Credit Card Act uh, and the way in which Credit Card Act regulations limit access to uh, um, uh, to younger consumers, for example, or interfere with risk, uh, the ability to price risk effectively, the way that is cut off access uh, to credit cards. And when, when the supply of products goes away, that doesn't eliminate the demand. And so we say, at least maybe you don't agree that we should uh, get rid of those or, or whatever, or, or amend them. But but you should at least take account of the fact that there are costs, unintended consequences of those, and eliminate those. And we think that the great success in the American financial system has been eliminating regulatory barriers, most notably usury uh, restrictions. The second thing that we talk about is um, facilitating access and things that could uh, increase access. And one of the big choke points, I think uh, the report indicates uh, to greater financial inclusion right now is the center of, uh, of bank accounts in the in the economy, uh, which is this this sort of binary distinction as to whether you're banked or unbanked, depending on whether or not you have a, a bank account. And that just doesn't seem to be useful anymore. And it doesn't seem to be the way that a lot of consumers bank, which is consumers, it's much more of a uh, continuum now. Um, people unbundle bank accounts and get, you know, through fintech, uh, they use Venmo. They use all these different sorts of uh, products and in, uh, in, in services. Um, and one of the things we say, for example, is we should explore allowing a non-banks access to the payment systems and the payment clearance uh, system and what that might look like. And while there are obviously risks to that, we think that could be very helpful in uh, increasing financial access to the payment system and, and increasing uh, innovation uh, and payments of convenience for, uh, for consumers. Um, what you're referring to is is a problem which has been um, sort of repeatedly um, pointed to, including by you um, uh, yourself, George, which is um, the, the 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 lag period, the latency period between the time when you try to deposit a check and it's actually put into your account. And one of the recommendations we have is um, to do research on how much use of things like payday loans and the like is caused by the fact that it might take two or three days for somebody's paycheck to to clear the whole. Uh, the, you know, one of the things we point out is that even people who have bank accounts use check cashers uh, um, in a remarkably high rate simply because they need the money. Um, uh, uh, sooner, um, they they can't you know put the money deposit the money on Friday and not get access to it uh, in, until Monday. And so what we are saying, and, and other countries have managed to, to figure this out, how to create a faster uh, a payment system. Um, and uh, um, and we are saying basically look at our regulatory structure, including uh, uh, Reg CC, and figure out uh, the extent to which um, that is causing um, a logjam here, causing people to use um, alternative financial. Uh, providers uh, uh, and the like, and figure out how to balance the legitimate uh, uh, concerns about fraud with um, with people being able to get access to their money quicker. Um, and that's sort of what that whole recommendation is about. Just have a couple more uh, minutes uh, left, and I I find myself. Uh, challenge to decide uh, which of uh, <laughs> the other questions I had for you I should I, I should ask. Um, uh, let's see if we can't get two in with uh, relatively short responses. Um, uh, you say that uh, uh, <clears throat> the report says, I should say, the report calls the CFPB's current enforcement practices <clears throat> opaque. Pardon me, I lost an earbud. Wouldn't want to do that. Okay. 
now I can hear both sides of things. Uh, the report also recommends, uh, quote, that uh, consumer harm should be the lodestar of every enforcement decision. That seems to be a kind of strong, a pretty strong implied criticism of the Bureau uh, uh, that's, after all, charged with consumer financial protection. So if they're not basing their enforcement practices on uh, 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 harm done to consumers, uh, what, what, what are they basing them on? Uh, and uh, how do you propose to change that? Well, there's there's two questions there, which is first is transparency, and the second is what should they should they base it on? And on the transparency point, the other uh, federal regulators have adopted uh, matrices as to uh, how do they um, how, how they're going to impose uh, penalties um, and become more predictable. Um, one of the concerns we heard with the CFPB is um, that it's by that it's not clear. Um, what they're going to, you know, what, what they're going to pursue, what their enforcement priorities are going to be, and what the damages are likely to be, and oftentimes it's through this negotiating process where where people suggest that the CFPB starts off not necessarily with how much consumers have harmed, but how much they think the company could pay, uh, and then they work backwards uh, from there. And yes. so what we say is it would be good to adopt a civil penalty matrix like the other uh, bank regulators have, so that you can identify what the biggest issues are. You could take the big, you could take precautions um, and uh, and take appropriate precautions for the risks and highlight the things that you're most concerned about. We also suggest that the CFPB should adopt something that we call um, enforcement highlights. Um, and what that would do would be a way of not only saying what they've been doing, but also what they haven't been doing. One of the things that, uh, that the CFPB doesn't have a good way of communicating right now are what are the things that they have looked at and turn out to be okay. You only find out when they've sued somebody, not when they've looked at something and haven't uh, uh, sued somebody. Um, with respect to consumer harm, then it comes back to the same the, the same basic idea, which is that um, the the focus should be not the the focus should be on remediating consumer harm. Um, adjusted by the uh, by the probability of getting caught. Again, the idea here is to take optimal enforcement policy, so that you are um, that the that lenders and providers are are allocating um, their their risk uh, reduction, uh, their internal compliance rules, and the like to um, their, their highest valued use, which is making sure that they are um, that they are in compliance with the things the CFPB cares most about, um, taking precautions where appropriate, but not taking over precautions uh, uh, and the like that can be expensive uh, um, and um, end up reducing access to credit and raising costs. Thanks, Todd. Uh, we have a few questions now uh, that uh, have come in from various listeners. And so I'd like to turn uh, the floor to them by uh, uh, posing some of their questions to you, Todd. Uh, the first one comes from Jane on, on Twitter, and she asks, what do you see as the biggest barrier to alternative data being used uh, in, in the mainstream? In mainstream, I, I take it, uh, mainstream financial industry. Yeah, thank you for that question, Jane. And uh, um, and there's really two um, concerns that we became aware of. Uh, the the first is just simply regulatory, uh, which is um, that that we heard from certain um, 
parties that there there was regulatory uncertainty, and then there's a concern that parties have about what their liability might be if they were uh, considered to be um, um, uh, furnishers of, uh, of of information related to credit. Um, there are questions, for example, involving um, cell phones um, and cell phone payments where uh, the ability to, um, you know, whether you're paying your cell phone bill, the ability to be able to provide that information um, by cell phone companies, it was, it was unclear how the privacy regulations intersect uh, with um, with the, with this benefit. And that's a lot of what the problem we run into here is, is we have um, a relatively highly encrusted and uh, a difficult um, uh, privacy system that's been built up in the United States. I think a lot of people, for example, uh, pointed to the HIPAA rules involving medical privacy, where obviously it's designed to serve a certain function, which it does well, but also can be a barrier to people getting better health care because of limits on the ability of uh, healthcare providers to be able to share information easily about your, your medical condition. And so I think one of the things that we became aware of is there's a little bit of a balkanized regulatory view as to what is the ability of utility providers? What is the ability of cell phone providers? A lot of these um, potential people who could uh, rent is another one. A, a lot of these uh, um, people who could furnish useful information aren't clear whether uh, what the regulatory framework is that governs them. And it's all voluntary, right? Our credit reporting system here in the United States is voluntary. And so if you run any risk or any cost of uh, um, or any risk of liability, you're not likely to do it. Uh, the second thing is, is social, uh, which is attitudes towards privacy are very much in flux. Um, and and people's views on that are changing. Um, and so, uh, and, and, you know, and, and one of the problems is, is that people who are making privacy policy aren't usually 25-year-olds or 30-year-olds. Uh, they're 60-year-olds uh, or they're heads of, uh, of organizations and the like. And so one of the things we say is let's keep the system flexible um, so that as people's attitudes towards this uh, change over time, what is acceptable and what's unacceptable, that they should be, uh, that they should be allowed to, uh, to do it. Uh, and, and so those, I think, are the largest <clears throat> barriers at this point are regulatory and social. We have a, a question from uh, a Slido. Uh, uh, the person isn't uh, uh, identified. Um, let's see if I can find it. There were several, actually. Ah, yes. Uh, the questioner asks, since there were no consumer representatives on the task force, did the task force receive, oh, sorry, consult and receive input and views from such representatives? Absolutely. And thank you for that question, because, um, you know, it was one of these things where it was challenging. We, we were on a very strict deadline of year and obviously the pandemic uh, made it much more challenging. We literally were in the CFPB building meeting for an in-person meeting the day it closed in March because of the pandemic. Uh, and we had laid out a very aggressive um, uh, slate of meetings and uh, um, uh, session, listening sessions. And we did one uh, that week before we shut down. And so that kind of set us back a little bit, but we were very determined to get this input. So we did a number of things, which is number one, we did a request for information. Um, and we're very gratified. A lot of people provide a lot of good information about issues we should be looking at 
uh, and, and, and the like. We also had our staff, um, and I want to thank our staff, who was brilliant and, and incredibly dedicated during this, uh, to go out and do what we call the public research um, uh, examination, which is to go out and look at what every what a lot of stakeholders are saying, especially consumer uh, so-called consumer groups um, and what they uh, were, were doing. And then once we kind of got our sea legs, we did a series of listening sessions um, online. We did a, a, a hearing with academic experts, uh, including Mercer uh, uh, Baradarin, Marcus Cole, uh, Vicki Bogan, and um, Vernon Smith. Um, and so we did all that we could to get as much input as we could, especially given the challenges of the pandemic. Um, and we were gratified with the cooperation we got. So we got a lot of that. Um, we got a lot of direct background. We consulted with, I think, 15 or so, so other agencies in the federal and state government. And we got a lot of input. And, and I want to thank especially the CFPB staff for how helpful they were in, in answering our questions, providing information and providing uh, input to us. So we tried to cast as wide a net as we, uh, as we possibly could to try to get all the perspectives we could. Thanks, Todd. Uh, there's another uh, Slido question, and let me see if I can provide, uh, put my fingers on it. Uh, this one is from Victoria, <clears throat> and she wonders whether there isn't also a, a problem with fees that are provided in class action suits uh, to the plaintiff's uh, attorneys, and whether uh, these aren't uh, uh, disproportional to the actual uh, um, uh, rewards, uh, settlement amounts provided to the con consumers. And I think this is a good question since the goal is to base enforcement on harm. One would think that making the consumers whole is very important. If you're limiting these, uh, the amounts that can be uh, 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 settled upon, and then too much of that goes to lawyers, the consumers end up um, perhaps not being made whole at all. What was the uh, task force. Uh, what thought has the task force given to this problem? Uh, well, thank you for that question, Victoria. And um, and that gives me a an opportunity to probably say say something I had a chance to, to mention, which is we wrote you know nine hundred pages. We covered uh, yet we didn't cover everything. Oh, believe it or not. Uh, and um, and we as we lay out at the beginning of the report, we had a, a three part test uh, for for things that we did not address. So for example, there's very little in the report on mortgages um, and mortgage servicing and the like. And everybody knows that mortgages are important. Everybody knows that, that that was, you know, huge involved in the financial crisis and in, 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 in everything else. So, but yet we don't touch very much on the mortgage uh, market. Why is that? Well, we had sort of three factors that we considered, which is uh, first is something important. And obviously that would be important. But second, um, has the CFPB already looked at it um, such that there's something that we feel like we could add? And third, is there something that our particular task force had as a comparative advantage to be able to uh, to, to weigh in on? Um, was it something that was within our, our rubric? And is it something that we felt like we had something uniquely valuable to uh, to speak to? And so if you look at mortgage servicing for in mortgages, for example, CFPB has had a huge amount of activity and regulations in retrospect uh, review in that area. Obviously, uh, Mark Calabria over at FHFA knows more about this topic than uh, probably everybody on this mm -hmm. uh, call put together. Um, and so, 
that was an area that um, there's a lot going on. There's a very rich body of research. And we didn't think that by and large, we had a lot to say that was useful to add to the GSE patch, uh, for example. We talk about some odds and ends of things that we think are useful from a consumer perspective, but that, that debt collection might be another example of something where the CFPB has done a lot of work. And so your point is a, is a good one. It's a good question. It's obviously an important question. It would go to uh, consumer harm, but it's not something that, uh, that we addressed here as something where we felt like it was particularly within the scope of what the director asked us to to report on um, and directly something that we thought that we had a particularly unique expertise to be able to contribute something um, uh, meaningful uh, for. Well, I hope if there's some agency out there that uh, is capable of uh, making lawyers cost less uh, that they get to it. Peter on Slido. I'm sorry, I've got quite a horse in my, I have a frog in my throat. <clears throat> uh, Peter on Slido asks uh, how you expect digital currencies to change the financial landscape. <clears throat> and I suppose that might that question might refer either to private digital currencies or to uh, the possibility of central bank uh, supplied digital currencies. So perhaps you could say something briefly about each of those things, uh, uh, Todd. That, that's a great uh, question. And, and I would refer you for detailed discussion to, uh, to chapter nine of volume one of our report, which is on innovation. Um, and we were, um, the, the task force is big believers in, um, uh, in the role of innovation in improving competition, consumer choice, and particularly financial inclusion. Um, and that includes digital currencies uh, and, and the like, uh, which is, I see Alex further down asked about, does the report address faster payments? Um, and and uh, said the Fed has moved on this. Um, and we do, and we encourage faster payments. And um, again, George has written some really uh, excellent uh, uh, work on this, and it's kind of inexplicable how long it has taken um, in my view, for us to get to a faster payment system or when it's been done uh, elsewhere in the world. But there's a little bit of a sense in which faster payments, while very helpful, is kind of like I, I analogize it in my head to sort of making the landline telephone system better uh, and regular land-based phone calls uh, uh, clearer. And, it's, and the response is, well, what about cell phones? Um, and that's the way I think about the question of access to uh, digital currencies and like uh, for consumers, which is, I think, uh, as I was saying earlier, bank accounts are, are a real choke point for people to uh, to get access to the financial system. Um, the big full service bank account like we have today is not obviously the best system for 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 people where you bundle together a transactional account with uh, you know, sort of payments with access to loans and interest and all that sort of thing. There's no reason those two things have to be bundled together. There's historical reasons why that might be. But today, people are disaggregating their financial services and using a lot of different providers for different uh, different services from lending to payments and the like and one payment platform on top of another. And I think that digital currencies are a way forward with respect to that um, as a way of sort of uh, end running bank accounts. Bank accounts are still going to be there. They're going to be useful for a lot of people, but I think more and more people are, are comfortable with that. And again, one of the things that's interesting about during the, the pandemic is trans, transitions that people thought might take 10 years 
took five or 10 months. Um, the whole, the world is, is accelerating and it's accelerating at a, a, an accelerating pace and transitions to perhaps um, online banking that people have using their, their phones for banking and the like. We've seen how quickly that uh, the you know mother, uh, necessity is the mother invention, and you think people who would never use those uh, type of devices have been using them in the past year. Um, contactless payments have taken off, right? Um, uh, online banking, all these sorts of things, and so I think digital currencies is probably the next thing, and in particular things like um, stable coins, uh, things like that that can be used as a mechanism for people to um, come up with a, a a better, faster, more secure. Um, uh, payments uh, transactions, I think, is is the next frontier for uh, for consumers, and in particular for uh, lower income consumers. Uh, for, and and we, to the extent that we've seen this in the rest of the world, in places like M-Pesa and things like that, show the the way in which people with a phone can be empowered to be able to do things that you would never have thought in the past. You know, uh, uh, people often think of. Uh, payments in terms of either old-fashioned bank accounts <clears throat> or blockchain-based digital currency. There's a lot of stuff in between. And one one option that your report uh, refers to, uh, uh, at least briefly, is stored value cards, which are uh, an important form of uh, a, payments, uh, uh, a payments device that uh, is... Uh, important particularly for the unbanked that, that, that many of the unbanked use as an alternative to having bank accounts. <clears throat> so um, uh, I, I just wanted to throw that out because uh, they, 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 they tend to fall under the radar, but they're actually much more widely used than people realize. And they, uh, they can offer a lot of banking services to people who don't uh, have bank accounts. Some people think that they are the real uh, option that needs to be uh, advanced. <clears throat> Uh, we had a question from Alex on Slido about faster payments, but uh, really asking uh, about what the the uh, task force has had to say about them. But I think you've kind of addressed that. Uh, so, Alex, I, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to move on uh, to some others. Uh, here's a question uh, from Nick on Slido. Slido's getting uh, 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 the the most uh, action here. There's a section in the report, uh, Nick says, devoted to modernizing rules around e-signatures. And indeed, there is, and I skipped that. I had a question, but uh, I didn't have time for it. So thank you, Nick. Uh, did the pandemic influence the report's uh, findings and recommendations about uh, uh, these rules? Uh, first, uh, uh, tell us what the report does recommend about e-signatures, Todd, and then Tell us whether the pandemic was behind that recommendation. Yeah, and 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 basically, what we say in so many words is uh, um, the e-signature rules were more or less obsolete the moment that the uh, the paper uh, the you know, that the the ink dried on the e-signature rules. And basically, what we're saying is that uh, um, uh, that 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 we should. Um, uh, the Congress re replace or revise substantially the eSign Act uh, to remove in things like uh, um, antiquated requirements, uh, required disclosures of hardware and software and all these sorts of things. Um, people consume information on their phones now. Um, they're not going to take 
documents, print them out, uh, review them, do all these sorts of things that e-signs suggest. And so it's just kind of an antiquated uh, um, uh, rule. Um, and, um, and you know, there's been ways that, you know, uh, uh, UADA um, is a workaround that the states have come up with. Uh, but but e-signs just kind of you know, friction in the gears uh, right now. And, and, and it's one of, and the pandemic did, this was something obviously that was uh, something we would have been interested in, but the pandemic really highlighted and the pandemic really highlighted a lot of some of the more archaic aspects of uh, the financial regulatory system, which is based on this old idea of big stacks of paper and in-person type processes. Uh, I referred earlier to states that require in-person uh, um real estate closings and wet signatures and documents and notaries. And you just think of what a hassle it is to conduct a lot of financial transactions in a world in which people consume information on their phones. They're not printing things out. They're checking boxes and, you know, they're, they, they, you know, and, and the like, and eSign just doesn't fit with that. But eSign, I think, is a, is a, uh, a, a case study of a larger concern that we had, which is to to create a regulatory system that was more flexible, um, to, that could could expand over time. As I said a moment ago, the the world is accelerating at an accelerating rate; it's speeding up. Um, Technology is changing so quickly. Consumer preferences are changing so quickly. The ways consumers use financial products are changing so quickly. And we have a system that's kind of encrusted in a 1970s mindset, and it worked pretty well for many decades. But it's a system based on uh, on paper. It's a system based on um, these long, detailed, uh, prescriptive disclosures. Um, and it just doesn't really work anymore. Um, uh, and so we had a general uh, theme in the report of moving towards more principles-based regulation rather than rules-based regulation in order to provide that flexibility. We talk about the need to come up with more formal ways of dealing with uh, emergency situations, such as the pandemic and the ability to kind of um, to, to respond to that in a coherent way. The financial regulators, I think, did a pretty fabulous job of kind of responding on the fly, given the you know powers that they had to the pandemic, but creating a more formalized process for responding to crises uh, like that. We've had three crises in the last 20 years between uh, you know 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis, and the pandemic, and I don't think anybody thinks those are going to go away. Um, and so that's the other thing I think eSign is a good example of, is don't take a snapshot in time put it in legislation, think about creating a more flexible way that will protect consumers while at the same time allow that system to adapt as technology and consumer preferences change. We have time uh, for uh, at least one more question. And we have one here from uh, from Tom on Slido. And Tom is a Cato sponsor, so pay close attention. <laughs> uh, Tom asks, <laughs> Uh, can you name some significant regulations uh, that need to be reduced? I suppose pick 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 your top three or something like that, Todd. And and also, can you address the broader question of uh, how how easy it is to reduce regulations in this field in financial uh, in the financial realm, as opposed to adding new regulations? Uh, are you fighting an uphill battle when you want to get rid of some regulation? Is, compared to proposing something new? Uh, those are the two Yeah, questions. great, great questions, Tom. Th thank you for that. And I want to start with the second one, which will then um, frame the, uh, the first question, which is one of the strong views that we express in this report is that it is time to move beyond um, the idea of regulation as a zero-sum game. 
uh, and this is generally a problem, but it's especially a problem of financial regulation, which is a tendency to think of more regulation as good for consumers and less regulation is better for, for industry. Regulation versus deregulation. I don't know that we use the term deregulation in the entire report. Um, and the reason is it, it's not just rhetorical, it's, it's conceptual, which is a good system of regulation should not be zero sum, it should be positive sum. Good regulation is good for consumers, industry, and the overall economy. And so we give the example of debt collection. Good sound debt collection rules um, uh, are, are fair to consumers and give them confidence to borrow. Um, and it's fair to legitimate uh, lenders who do legitimate uh, collection practices that are not uh, oppressive to, to consumers. And where consumers feel like they're being treated, uh, that, they, that there's a fair and efficient system, consumers will borrow more, they will consume more, they will use more financial products. That's a good example uh, that is subject to good, sound, rigorous cost-benefit analysis of something that's a positive sum. And that is what animated us through this report, is, is trying to think about a regulatory framework that uh, protects consumers uh, and empowers consumers and improves consumer welfare across the board by increasing choice, reducing prices, increasing innovation, while at the same time protecting consumers from from harm. Um, and that was our that was our goal. And so um, uh, and so we usually use, for example, we talk about amending regulations, studying regulations to reduce their unintended consequences, um, and making regulation uh, uh, work better. Um, uh, but but I think that's the biggest obstacle uh, in terms of uh, the ease of reducing regulation versus adding it is that we just we need a better conceptual framework for thinking about regulation and get beyond this zero sum regulation versus deregulation type uh, type thing. And so there's a number of places we actually suggest some places where maybe new regulation might be possible. So we say, for example, uh, um, maybe Congress should consider looking at ECOA um, to you know, societal norms have changed and um, disability, for example, is not uh, under ECOA. Maybe Congress should consider whether or not um, whether or not uh, um, d disability should be protected under ECOA. We talk about other things in ECOA that are just modernized. So, for example, there's a whole market now in which uh, uh, people can borrow money for assisted fertility treatments, which are very expensive. Yet, ECOA says you can't ask somebody what their childbearing plans are, <laughs> right? That's a kind of an obsolete concern that maybe had some credence in the 70s. But nowadays, asking somebody if they're borrowing money in order to engage in assisted reproductive uh, technology, it's just, you know, that's just kind of regulatory brain deadness uh, at, at this point, right? That, uh, that, that you need a way of kind of updating rules and regulations as uh, things, uh, things change. We also point to things, as I said, like repealing the, Dodd, uh, repealing the Durbin Amendment, amending uh, the Credit Card Act, um, and some of the other things where, we, uh, you know, where it's clear that there are unintended consequences and costs to, to consumers. And maybe somebody might disagree with um, the weighting of the cost and benefits, maybe, but, but at least it's worth considering what are those unintended consequences and costs and think about whether there's a better way to get from here to there and achieve your consumer protection goals at lower cost uh, to, uh, to, to consumers. And so I think good, solid, rigorous analysis um, is the way in which you get regulatory reform. And thanks, Todd. Uh, we are just have a couple minutes left. So uh, uh, we have a, a question from Andy that asks uh, whether the report addresses identity theft 
that arises from payment systems and check systems. Todd, if you can answer that in less than one minute, we have one minute, a quick answer, and then I'm going to, I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, 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 end the program. Well, thanks. That is not something we talk about in detail. We do raise concerns about data privacy and data security, but that is not an issue uh, that, that, that we talk about. Although there, I will add one last thought that this question of um, incarcerated, formerly incarcerated populations, it appears identity theft is a very big problem for people who are in, uh, in prison because of their inability to check what's going on with their, their lives, basically. Uh, and so that that is one area in which we talk about identity theft uh, very strongly. And we also talk about the unintended consequences of things like the GDPR um, and their potential to actually increase identity theft under the guise of actually protecting uh, uh, people. Thanks, Todd. Uh, and thanks Thank you, for George. your uh, thanks for your generous time uh, this morning. I really appreciate your giving us the opportunity to have you talk about uh, the task force report. I also want to thank our audience for, uh, for being here, but also for their very good questions, terrific questions. Uh, and uh, I hope you've all uh, enjoyed it and please uh, keep track of our other activities. We'll have more in the future. We'd love to have you all back. So thank you all very much. Bye-bye.